Well, I'm glad that you guys uh, are here this morning. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the gospel and politics this morning. The gospel and politics. Now, this will not be an ideological message. This is not a message about one political agenda or another. But how it is that we understand politics and a little bit government, not too much government as an institution. We'll tackle that at another time. But how we understand and engage and respond and navigate the kind of crazy political seasons that we are in right now. Um, this is a season of political hysteria and unrest, unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I've talked to some who were uh, alive and able to, uh, you know, old enough to remember the 60s, the early 70s, and many of them have even said even the 60s didn't compare to some of the craziness that we're seeing right now. Um, many of you have heard, if you listen to the news or you listen uh, to pundits or, or political analysts, uh, you'll hear especially politicians saying, uh, and some in our media, this is the, the most important election in American history. It's the most important American election that we have ever had. Our democracy will rise and fall on the result. Well, I would say to that, our country, though very, very, very young on a historical scale, has had some pretty consequential elections in our past. We've had some times where the electorate really thought this way. And I'll tell you why you can dismiss some of those statements um, outright. Because it's because of this, that, that whoever is saying it is implying that if their team doesn't win, America is sunk. And both of them feel the same way, right? They're saying the same thing, meaning two different things. Both cannot be true. And yet we're told to believe this. We're trying to be led into voting by and through and because of fear. And can I just say, friends, it's sinful to allow yourselves to operate that way as the people of God. And I will say this too, if our constitutional democracy, if our democratic republic crashes based on whether Donald Trump is reelected or Joe Biden is elected, it must have been built on a very faulty foundation. We have navigated all kinds of presidencies, all kinds of elections, all kinds of presidencies where a large portion of the nation was unhappy and uncertain during that time. And then someone else was elected, and a different portion of the country was unhappy and uncertain during that time. I'm not saying that elections don't have consequences and don't matter. They do, and they do. I'm simply saying a bit of perspective wouldn't hurt most of us right now. My concern through all of this, ultimately, is not who's elected. Like, I've got my king. But it's how the church has been responding and engaging in this political sewer. It's how men and women who profess to be followers of Jesus have been being blown around and how they've been engaging in what their social media accounts look like. And just, I, I think we all know this, right? But, but social media is the sewer for political ideology, right? It's where everybody goes to play and everyone leaves smelling bad. 
So I would just caution you a little bit against that. Part of what I'm doing when I say, hey, check in when you're here on social media. Use uh, shareables that we'll be creating this week for the kickoff of a new series next week. Is Let's redeem a little portion of this great technology that we have now. Let's use it for God's glory and his kingdom purposes. So what do we make of all of this? What do we make of a season where many professing Christians seem more certain of their political affiliation than they do of Christ himself? How are we to engage and live as followers of Jesus in an age of heightened political hysteria and tribalism? And how do we be the church? Friends, because we're called to be the church in a way where it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican or a non-voter, you're drawn in by Christ and by the lives and the attitudes of Christ's people. Because the gospel is the message we proclaim. That's our message. Let's, uh, let's take a, a look at Matthew chapter 22, the gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. It's one of the very few places where Jesus makes any kind of direct political statement. Though saying Jesus is Lord is absolutely a political statement. It's a revolutionary statement. It says Jesus is our king. Jesus is our Lord. He reigns supreme in our lives above any other political system or earthly ruler. But there's a passage here that I think for many of us is almost too familiar. We read it and we nod and, and, and we walk away with a few things that I think we think we understand. But I want this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit to unpack this a little bit for us. Because I think there's so much in this. It's a dense passage that speaks to where we are. And what's interesting about this political season is everyone from 6th and 7th graders all the way up to the oldest people still living in our country are talking about it. They've got opinions about it. And we need to be navigated and guided by Christ. Let's look at Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Jesus had just cleansed the temple and taught some unpopular things. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said. We know that you are a man of integrity. Always be careful about people who begin a conversation by praising you. <laughs> Always be just a little cautious about that. We know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others. They'd learned this by now. This is an absolute accurate statement. Because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, Jesus wasn't impressed by wealth or power or influence. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites... Why are you trying to trap me? Haven't you ever wanted to be able to be free to say what you wanted in a conversation in a moment? Like Jesus does this often. The Apostle Paul actually does this in a number of his letters in the New Testament. He'll just call people out publicly um, for their bad behavior. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Verse 19, show me the coin used for paying the tax. 
they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, let me give you just a couple of words of background about this passage. And then we're going to dig in here a little bit and mine up some of what's going on here. Because as is common with Jesus' interactions with people, there's an incredible amount of nuance and complexity and density to his questions and his responses here to the Pharisees and the Herodians. Just a word about the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were uh, on opposite political spectrums in Jesus' day. The Herodians were supporters of imperial Rome and the Roman rule, and the Pharisees were not. They rejected imperial Rome and Rome's rule. And yet these two political ideologues, these, these sects of political ideology come together to Jesus to try and trap Jesus. They're trying to smoke him out and get him to come down on one political side or the other. Because they know how he answers this question is going to determine whether he's in this camp or this camp. And we've got a lot of that going on in our country right now. Are you in my camp or the enemy's camp? Are you here or are you there? And they use it by talking about paying the imperial tax. This was literally a head tax. It was a, a tax on people who had been conquered and subjugated by Rome uh, that they would pay for the benefit of getting to be Roman subjects. Isn't that nice? Right? Um, it was not much. It was paid annually once a year. It was basically a, about a day's wage or a day's worth of earnings. But here's what's interesting. Uh, this tax had just been instituted or levied 25 or 30 years before Jesus is on the scene here. And have you ever noticed that people don't like new taxes? Anybody remember, speaking of presidents, a former president that was largely not reelected because he made a singular prophetic statement that there would be no new taxes? And then there were new taxes, along with a bit of an economic decline toward the end of his presidencies. People don't like new taxes. And so there was a man uh, 25 years before Jesus that led a revolt of Jews against this imperial tax, this head tax. His name was Judas the Galilean. Judas the Galilean. And he led an armed revolt against the Roman authorities over this tax. And he did a couple of things. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. He said he's bringing the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God himself instead of Rome. He also led an armed group into the temple and cleansed the temple of Gentiles, of people that he felt should not have been there. But the Roman authorities, as they always did, caught up with Judas, tried him and executed him as a revolutionary, as a tyrant. And now Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is talking about what? The kingdom of God. He's saying he brings the kingdom of God. Jesus in Matthew 21 had just done what? We mentioned it. He cleansed the temple. He didn't use an armed band to do it. Because Jesus doesn't operate like we'd like him to operate. 
Georgians are a lot like Texans. Like we'd like our Jesus coming in, riding on a tank, flags waving, right? Weapons firing down range. That's the Jesus that'll excite us. We can sing about a Jesus like that. Got gunships above supporting him. We're like, that's our man. That's my Jesus. But Jesus doesn't operate that way. He operates through the changing of human hearts that result over time in the changing of our worldviews, the way we see people, the way we understand the nations, the way we understand people of races that aren't ours, of ethnicities that aren't ours, of socioeconomic groups that aren't ours. So Jesus was, in fact, bringing the kingdom of God, but in a new and a different way. But there was one thing he was missing. He wasn't leading any kind of armed revolt about the taxes. And so they're here and they're curious with all of this background. They're like, hey, are you a Judas? A Judas? Whose side are you on? This side or that side? Are you a revolutionary? Now listen, it, they're trying to get Jesus to simply say yes or no. And basically, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's calling for an armed revolt. They have a lot of that in their background. Judas the Galilean wasn't nearly the only one in recent memory in Jesus' day who'd led a Jewish revolt, claiming to be ushering in God's rule and reign and been executed. If he says, yes, pay the tax, then everyone who's been following him thinks he's a phony. They think he's sold out because they're saying, well, you've done this and you've done this. The only thing left to do is, is this. But Jesus does something instead. He refuses political simplicity. He refuses political complacency and he refuses political primacy. Let's start with his rejection of political simplicity. They frame the question like this in verse 17. What's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? They're wanting a yes or no answer. And you'll find that this is the political climate that we're in right now. Are you for this? Yes or no? Are you for this person? Yes or no? Can I tell you those are questions of simpletons. They are questions of ideologues and questions of manipulators. Life is not that clear. Life is not that clear. And Jesus rejects this. He refuses to answer with a yes or no. Instead, he reframes it with a question and leads them into a discussion. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had the ability just to dialogue with one another? To discuss and to say, tell me more about why you, why you believe that, why you feel that way. And truly listen. Acknowledging that there's a chance I'm wrong in some ways. That's what we're called to be as a people of God. And I think there is, um, there's a warning here for us not to take Jesus where Jesus wouldn't go himself. Which means that we don't take Jesus and align him with a single political issue or a single politician or a single party or single political ideology. He will not 
be used that way. By us saying Jesus is for that political platform, for this ideology. Instead, look at what Jesus says. He, he knows their intent, verse 18. And in verse 19, he just says, hey, show me the coin used for paying the tax. This says something about Jesus' ministry, too, because they pull out one of these simple coins. Basically a tribute penny. Jesus doesn't have one on him. They pull it out. They show him this coin. And he asks them a question. Whose image is on this? The, the Greek word is icon. Whose icon is minted on this coin? And they say Caesar. And he just says, okay, you know what? Give Caesar what is Caesar's. And give God what is God's and the, the powerful thing about these coins is inscribed on the coin in Jesus' day was a reference not just to Caesar, but to Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. To Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of God. And as they were minted more and more, it would say Caesar Augustus or Caesar Tiberius, king Son of God, high priest. Are you starting to understand a bit about how truly revolutionary the gospel was in Jesus' day? You understand how explosive Jesus' words were? Jesus refuses to be a this or that person. Um, on September 18th uh, this month, obviously, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And it's been amazing to watch the craziness about her passing. And I've personally watched Christian friends, men and women who I could testify to their saving faith in Jesus, their love for Jesus, rip one another apart on social media based on their comments regarding the passing of a single Supreme Court justice. Because they bought into this either or, yes, no, this or that mentality where Jesus will not be taken. He will not be used as a pawn for our political expediency. The truth about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the same as it is about most of us. She did some really, really, really good things. And she pushed our country to move toward justice in some really important areas. And she supported some really, really bad things. Some things that are out of step with justice. And with God's passion for the sanctity of human life. She was a human being, but we can't talk about it that way. We're pushed into these camps. Tim Keller, uh, some years back around the election of Donald Trump, when there was so much heat uh, around Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, was asked how you follow Jesus in a political season while holding a political viewpoint. How, how are you faithful to Jesus while making political stances? And he said, that's easy. Faithfulness in Jesus is seen because you move. Your views deepen and they change. If you're on the right, you move more toward the left because the right gets some things wrong. If you're on the left, or I guess it would be your left up here. I'm going to do them both on this side then. If you're on the right, you move more toward the left 
because the right gets some things wrong. If you're on the left, you move more toward the right because the left gets some things wrong. And what Keller was saying is Jesus will not be stuck into a political peg by us. N.T. Wright, probably the most prominent biblical scholar, New Testament scholar alive today, speaking of Jesus' unwillingness to say yes or no here, says that it is a masterful refusal, refusal to simply say yes or no. He doesn't do either one. Had he told them to submit or had he told them to revolt? He had actually done neither and both. He'd done neither and both. But Jesus' revolution wasn't one of human force and physical force and armed conflict. So Jesus, he rejects political simplicity. But he also rejects, and these two are are linked together, so we'll deal with them together. He rejects also political complacency and political primacy. Verse 20, when Jesus deals with the issue of image and asks this question, whose image is on the inscription, whose icon is this here? And then he goes on to say, give Caesar what is Caesar's and give God what is God's. He is clarifying and limiting the allegiance of his followers to the state. Which means through this passage he is clarifying and limiting our allegiance as his followers today to the state. He says, give Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, give Caesar what has Caesar's image on it. The tribute penny, the denarius, has Caesar's image on it. It was literally minted from his own wealth. From his own wealth. Jesus says, give it to him. Give it to him. Because it has his image on it. So he's saying there is, a, uh, there is a measure and a degree of allegiance we owe to the state. And if he can say that about Rome, he can say that about any country and any political leader and any president. That there is a degree of allegiance we simply owe. But he's also limiting it. He's saying give God what has his image on it. And that's you. That's you. Jesus is reaching back with the image language to Genesis 1, and he's doing it intentionally. He's saying these coins have been minted out of Caesar's wealth and have his image on it. You've been created out of nothing, and you have God's image on you. So Caesar can't have you. No political party or system or president or government or nation ultimately can have you. You've got God's image stamped on you. You belong to him and to him alone. So give the state what is due the state. But your supreme allegiance belongs to God. There's a really good book out right now written a couple of years ago called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And it's a very good work on Jesus' view of salvation. Give back to God what is God's. That's you. That's you. Jesus is limiting government. This is the the first view of limited government in human history. Because even in Jesus' day, even the Jews had a belief in the divine right of kings. That every individual king was appointed directly by God. And kings loved this. They loved this. And there's no doubt when you look at Romans 13 and other places in Scripture that both 
the institution of government and governors are appointed by the direct work of God or by his permissive will. And that brings up all kinds of tension in us. But we see it throughout human history. We see it with the Roman Caesars. So Jesus is saying, give your rulers money, but they don't get your personal allegiance. You don't bow to them. You don't worship them or their cult. But he goes further, and it's subtle, but it's here. It's a little harder to notice in English, but you can notice it here in translations if you're paying attention. He changes the verb that the Pharisees and the Herodians use when he answers them. Look back at verse 17. They say, tell us then, based on your remarkable character and the fact that you always speak truth, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And then in verse 21... Once they reply that the inscription on the coin is Caesar's, Jesus tells them, so give back, literally pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And this is a, a, a playful change of wording, but it's important. He's saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Literally, pay back what he deserves. So the question is, what does a tyrant deserve? His taxes back that were minted out of his own wealth while you enjoy some of the privileges even as a subject of Rome, of the Roman road system, and have to a degree the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Yeah. Yeah. A tyrant deserves that. What about resistance? Does a tyrant deserve resistance? Absolutely. This is subtle and it's nuanced, but it's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's saying they can have your money, but they can't have you. Caesar doesn't get your heart, your mind. Because what he ultimately wants, what Caesar and what every ruler ultimately wants is your acceptance of their system. Of their coercion, of their injustice, of their exclusion. They want no one to sit over them in judgment. R.T. France, a New Testament scholar that specializes in the Gospels, and particularly Matthew, says that when the governing authority takes upon itself to ignore or to actually oppose the will of God, loyalty to God may mean that it is no longer possible to accept the authority of the government. This is where we live, and please don't be so naive ideological as to believe that the government of the United States is somehow righteous and perfect somehow does not practice injustice it's somehow not filled with people that are sinners who are only able to build institutions and systems that reflect our own sinfulness is it as bad as others not in some ways in some ways yes but don't be naive. This kind of resistance is what Martin Luther King Jr. did. He wasn't perfect. We know that. If you know Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, you know he had flaws. He had issues. He had places where he, he screwed up in his life. But he pushed back and resisted while giving the government what the government was owed, but not his supreme allegiance. And because not only of what he did, but because of the way he did it, 
as a follower of Jesus and a pastor. He was able to link arms with men and women of different colors and different religious backgrounds to say the kind of systemic injustice that's still being practiced in this nation must end. And he led an awakening and a sense of transformation that rocked not only the United States, but had ripple effects around the world. Jesus, in his statements here to give Caesar what is Caesar's, to pay back Caesar what he's owed, and God what he is owed, doesn't allow his followers to either totally opt out of the system and not participate. There was a group in Jesus' day called the Essenes, and this is what they did. They completely pulled out. They didn't pay any taxes. They didn't participate at all in the systems of their day. And Jesus is rejecting that. But he's also not allowing his followers to revolt like the zealots did, where they did everything at the point of a small Roman sword. They believed that was the way. He's rejecting both political complacency and political primacy. Now Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God but not like they thought in his day and often not like we think in our day. It's slow and progressive. It's defined and recognized by love and justice and mercy and patience and forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that understands when I forgive you, I'm absorbing and taking on myself part of the pain that you inflicted. That's the cost of forgiveness. But these are the rails upon which the kingdom of God advances. He's reminding his listeners in his day, and he's reminding us today through his eternal word that there is an authority that reigns supreme over all human systems of government, over all human politicians. The truth is probably that if our current president is reelected, our country's going to be just fine. And that if Joe Biden is elected, our country is probably going to be just fine. We are not people of hysteria. Mark Deaver said this, and I love it. Christians are, by God's sovereign grace, like cockroaches. They can survive anything. They can survive anything. Church... Can I plead with you this morning not to live in fear, not to operate out of anger and hysteria and anxiety? Anything you listen to, and almost anyone you listen to right now, in the media or along the political spectrum, is intentionally trying to get you to operate this way. Don't do it. You are the people of God. Who do you have to fear? No one. That's right. Somebody knows. Yeah, no one. That's right, no one. We are God's people. Let us witness actively to a nation filled with anxiety and rancor and lawlessness and rioting and verbal assaults on one another that there's another way. That there's a way of discourse. That can lead to positive change. Theodore Beza was a French, uh, a French, 
of French, I'm still working on my accent too, of French, French Protestant theologian uh, in the 16th century. And he said this, he said, the church is an anvil, the church is an anvil which has worn down many hammers. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The church is an anvil which has worn down many hammers. God's calling us in our day right now to be the church and to not be pulled into the simple this or that, me or them, yes or no kind of thinking and behavior. It dishonors God and it hurts people. It does not help our nation move forward. It does not contribute to human thriving and human flourishing. Let me give you just a few takeaways that are very basic from this passage that I think speak to where we are right now. One is this. Our hope is not in America. And hey, I serve, so save your emails, right? Save your emails accusing me of being unpatriotic or not, not loving America. One, I don't care. I'd a lot rather be known as a follower of Jesus. But it's just a simple theological truth. Our hope is not in America. America is not the hope of the world. Jesus is. The gospel is that sets men and women free from the bondage and the tyranny and the eternal consequences of sin. Second, no political party or politician can give you what you most deeply yearn for. They can't do it. They're not going to meet your needs. They're not going to provide you security. They're not going to take care of you. That's God's role in your life. He's your provider and your protector. Government is an institution of God for sure. That's why we pray for our elected officials. And we should be able to pray if we are the people of God with as much zeal for Barack Obama as we do for Donald Trump or for whoever comes next or for however much we did George W. Bush. Does it, are you getting what I'm saying here? We're the people of God. And no political party or politician is going to give you what you ultimately want. Third, can I, can I just encourage you to pray more than you post? about political stuff and to pray before you post. Sometimes our posting isn't even mean. It just reveals a startling degree of theological shallowness. Just pause. Pray more than you post and pray before you post. Prayer will do more than our discussions ever will. Last thing I'd encourage you to do is just simply exercise humility and grace. Many of you are like me. I have family and friends that I know deeply love Jesus Christ and are committed to him fully. Who cannot imagine voting for Donald Trump. And who cannot imagine voting for Joe Biden. So could we just exercise a bit of humility and grace? And say, either way, Jesus is still king. Either way, Jesus is Lord. Either way, God's kingdom advances. So let's pray. Let's exercise good citizenship. Let's treat one another with respect. 
And let's not buy into the hysteria and the fear that so characterizes so much of what's going on in our country right now. Let me close with this. Um, R.C. Sproul is a, uh, an American theologian, pastor, professor who passed away just a couple of years ago. Um, I actually have a mug uh, in my office that has a quote from R.C. Sproul that I love that he was famous for saying to, to seminary students. And it's a really just a, a, a powerful question. What's wrong with you people? And he, he often said that to seminary students in response to some question or statement. What's wrong with you people? Um, and then he'd go on to straighten out those sitting in class. But R.C. Sproul said this. He said, it is not the role of the church to call the state to be the church. It is the role of the church to call the state to be the state. The state is not going to do the work of evangelism or administer the ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. God has called the local church to do that. That's our purview. But we do indeed expect and demand the state, as ordained by God himself, to be the state and to protect the sanctity of life, the future of the unborn, the institution of marriage as God has given marriage, to provide for the security and order and justice of its citizens. Because these things are not strictly religious issues but built into the fabric and well-being of humanity and nature by God himself. I hope that during the weeks ahead, you can settle down and root yourself deeply in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And say, whatever November brings, I'm going to be fine. I belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. I'm going to pray for my country. I'm going to seek to exercise discernment and good judgment as a citizen of this country, just as I would if I were a citizen of Brazil or China or Italy or any other of the nations of which God is the sovereign God of. And not be blown around by the winds of political ideology. It dishonors God. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, will you give us the power, the discernment, the wisdom to live and to respond during this season as you responded to the political winds and whims and ideologies of your day. God, may we be people who have our hope not in any particular nation or political party, but in you as our sovereign God. God, may we be people who exercise humility and grace in ways that honor you. God, this is my prayer, this is my plea this morning that Lost Mountain Baptist Church would be a shining example both corporately and individually as people and families that make up this local body of how you live through a time of uncertainty 
and political unrest. God, may we do all this to your glory. I pray and I pray so expectantly in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Come.